Would you please be seated?
pray, shall we? Father, that's our prayer today. That's our need today to just be still in your presence and and to just have a sense of renewed strength. Father, thank you for the refreshment that we find in your word, the instruction. And I pray that you would just encourage your church today through the teaching of the word. So we have this privilege and opportunity to hold our Bibles on our laps and to receive a word from you, that we would understand better who you are and who the Lord Jesus is as our great high priest and how that really matters. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord, with thanksgiving today. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you know that uh, change is difficult? You've experienced it in your own life there. It's just not easy to make changes. It is especially difficult, don't you find, to make changes when it is contrary to the way that you've been raised or it's something that you've never experienced in your life before and now you have to make change, it's very difficult. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7 today as we continue to make our way through this important chapter in the book of Hebrews and our study through, the, through this book. And I want you to 
have that mindset as we study the word together about how difficult it is for the recipients of this epistle, this letter from the writer of Hebrews to these Hebrew believers, how difficult it is for them to embrace change. I was thinking about um, stories I have heard, for example, oh, about uh, at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, the early 1900s, when the automobile uh, was uh, had been invented, and then guys like Henry Ford began to mass produce, and automobiles began to appear in communities in the United States for the very first time. And can you imagine, uh, the older generation just did not know what to think about that. Uh, They were noisy, they were dirty, they were disruptive, it scared their horses. And you just hear the most amazing stories about their resistance to the automobiles because change is difficult. Um, Some of the stories, uh, for example, um, in Vermont, they passed a statewide law for the state of Vermont that if an automobile was coming into a community, they had to stop and someone had to get a red flag and they had to walk in front of the automobile waving the red flag as the car drove through the community. Kind of defeats the purpose, I think, a little bit. Um, In Glencoe, Illinois, there's a story told about someone stretching a length of steel cable across the road in an effort to stop those devil wagons, they said. Those devil wagons. They don't need them around this community. Some cities actually banned outright automobiles in their city limits. There's a group, and I'll quit telling stories. I I don't have time to elaborate, but there is a group in Pennsylvania, a group of farmers, and you can imagine how difficult it was when the combustion engine began to be developed, and then men who had used teams of horses for work, and then tractors were starting to be introduced, and automobiles, how they couldn't get in their head that this was an improvement And so a group of farmers in Pennsylvania united together and started an organization that they named Farmers, the Farmers Anti-Automobile Society of Pennsylvania. They were just against it. How many would you agree with me, though, that though change is hard, that at least in this situation, new is better than old? New is better than old. Lots of times change is very difficult for us, but sometimes we need to change and often the new is an improvement and new is better than old. I need you to combine those two thoughts as we are at Hebrews chapter 7 today. I need you to bring those two concepts together and I want you to relate to the Hebrew audience with the reality of this uh, anti-automobile group in Pennsylvania that it is just so difficult for them to hear that they need a different and a new high priest. And not only do they need a new and different high priest under which they had grown up, but the new one was better. Now in Hebrews chapter 7, I want to remind you that we are now in the meat of the word. Okay, I was thinking uh, this morning that between the bad weather and the book of Hebrews, maybe no one would come to church today. I wasn't sure. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, I understand that we are in the heart of this book and our writer is now teaching deep theological truth and it's not easy to get our mind around it. Imagine how difficult it was for the original recipients who were steeped in Judaism and were very comfortable with the old way now being taught a new way and the new way they're being told is better and you need to embrace it. 
Let me remind you from last week that this is going to go on for a while. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. The writer has entered into an exposition of weighty matters as he's seeking to convince them that the new is better. And remember in chapter 7, and it's what our study is going to be about this morning, continuing from last week, all of chapter 7, he's trying to convince them that there is in Jesus Christ a new and a superior high priest. There is a better high priest above the order of Aaron, that Christ is the priest of a higher order above Aaron. You don't have this in your notes. I'm reviewing from last week. Chapter 7, we have a superior high priest than Aaron and Levi out of the tribe of Levi. Chapter 8, he's going to spend most of his time in chapter 8 trying to convince them that Christ is the priest of a better and a new covenant. And they're like, what's wrong with the old covenant? We, we love the old covenant. That's through Abraham and Moses and the law, and it's precious to us. And now you're telling us that there is a better covenant, a new covenant that is better? Yes, it's change, and the new is better than the old. Third, in chapter 9, he's going to convince them that Christ is the priest of a better and a greater sanctuary than the temple in which they've grown up. You're going to do away with the temple? You don't even need the temple anymore. He's going to, your, temp, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the priest of a new temple. We can do away with the old. How can we do? Ah, I don't like change, but new is better than old, I'm telling you. Chapter 10 then, he's going to spend his time arguing that Christ is the priest who offers a superior sacrifice over the sacrifices of Levi through Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, that those sacrifices were temporary and insufficient. And in fact, he's going to touch upon it today. And so this is not easy material. Uh, I'm going to do my best to to help us take it in bite-sized chunks and yet not bog down. And I want it to be helpful to us. And the mindset that we need as we enter into our study today, what are some of the old things that maybe you are holding on to? What are things that in newness of Christ you need to let go of? There is a new way, and it's a better way, and it's all about Christ. And so that's what our writer, our author, is convincing the Hebrew believers of. And we're in Hebrews chapter 7. And and to continue to help you understand what his arguments are as we let our eyes go to our notes now. And I recognize uh, we're not in frosting right now. We're dealing with flour. Okay, this is like you ever take flour and, you know, we're, we're, this is flour. This isn't frosting, but we wouldn't have anything to frost if we didn't have some flour. Okay, so we're in the heart of it here. And the writer is going to be spending chapter seven, as we've already introduced last week, arguing that Christ is a superior high priest to that of Levi and Aaron because he's from a priesthood that is outside and superior to theirs of Melchizedek. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But as we go through chapter 7, and we're going to pick it up at verse 11, and we found in the earlier services that we're going to get through three of our six irrefutable truths about Christ our high priest. We're going to do the first three, and I trust it'll be helpful to you, and we'll pick it up there next week, God willing. What he's trying to do, he's trying to prove that the new is better than the old. But if you look at your notes, I want you to see that he is intertwining three arguments or claims. I don't mean that he's starting a fight with them arguments, but he's, he's trying to defend 
and teach them and argue that there is a better high priest in Christ, okay? And what he has to convince them of, and these three arguments are ongoing all at the same time, basically, intertwined, interlaced throughout chapter 7. First of all, that Christ is qualified to be our high priest. Because in their mind, the old way was adequate. They don't need a new high priest. And how is it that he's even qualified? And he's going to deal with that right away in the text today. How is it that Christ is qualified to be our high priest? Now, this is the Hebrew mindset. Remember last week, we talked about needing to think more Jewishly as we approach these four chapters. Secondly, he's going to try to argue in the chapter today, in chapter 7, that He's going to show them how Christ is a superior high priest. Not only is he qualified to be our high priest, but he's a superior high priest. He's greater than the old. The new is better than the old. I'm telling you, people, stay with me. It's true, he says. Thirdly, he wants to show them how Christ is a necessary high priest. He's a necessary high priest. That the old way is actually outdated, insufficient, inadequate, and will accomplish nothing. And you need a new high priest because he's a necessary high priest. Do you kind of have that mindset? Let's look at our text. What we're going to do, instead of reading our text, which is our practice, to read God's word and then to go back and break it down, um, to save us a few minutes, and it's an extended passage, we're going to pick it up with verse 11 of chapter 7. And I want you to see that um, he is arguing these six irrefutable truths, what we're going to do, six irrefutable truths about Christ, our high priest. And at the same time, he wants to prove to them that the new is better than the old. The first point that he wants to make is that Christ provides a necessary perfection. Christ provides, as our high priest, something that no other high priest could ever produce, and that is a necessary perfection. I chose my words carefully. Perfection, no sin, and necessity, okay? Let's read our text, 711. Now, if perfection, there's the word, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law, parentheses. What further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Uh, Let's stop and let me comment just a minute. Notice what he says there. If perfection, okay, so it must be important to find this perfection. It is. We'll talk about that in a second. And if that perfection, spiritually speaking, could be found under the old way, there would, he says, under the Levitical priesthood, and for under that, the people receive the law, parentheses in my ESV, what further need, in verse 11, would there have been for another priest? And I want you to note, it doesn't show in our English Bible, but in the Greek text, if you were reading that, you would see that he's introducing to them another priest not similar to what they have, not another of the same kind, but another priest of a different kind. If the old were adequate, you wouldn't need the new of a different kind. So his recipients, his listeners understand there's something new going on here. They're very uncomfortable with it, and he's convincing them of the importance of it. Let's continue to read our text. 
for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. Let's stop and remind ourselves, in case you're new here today, without bogging down, that's what the whole first 10 verses of chapter 7 were about last week. This strange king-priest Melchizedek. All right, so what the point is, remember we were introduced to him last week, that David in Psalm 110 verse 4 prophesied that there would be another priest who would become a priest forever appointed by God of the order of Melchizedek and the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to his listeners to Psalm 110 verse 4 where they can see this Christ is that priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. And remember we met Melchizedek in Genesis This is chapter 14 when Father Abraham was coming home from the rescuing of his nephew Lot and the slaughter of the kings, and he meets this strange character out in the valley in in the plains, and here we're introduced to Melchizedek, it said, and he was a king and he was a priest, and what happened? Abraham bows to him, submits tithes to him, and receives a blessing from him. And so the writer in the first 10 verses also includes that interesting argument in verses 8, 9, and 10 there. He says, and remember, Abraham was, it was as though he had Levi and Aaron. He had Aaron in his loins. It was as his seed was in him. And so it's like all the priests of Levi with Aaron were paying tithes to Melchizedek and received a blessing from Melchizedek. And no one would argue that the one that pays the tithes is lesser than the one who receives the tithes. And no one would argue that the one who gives the blessing is greater than the one who receives the blessing. Therefore, you understand that Abraham submitted to Melchizedek. And if, and if Levi was still in Abraham and Aaron was still in Abraham's loins, then He submitted along with Abraham. It's sort of like federal headship. It's the idea that we talk about it with Adam in the garden of Eden. We say that we were in Adam when he sinned, right? Well, how are we in Adam? Well, he's our father. And so it's a way of saying that if we were there, we'd have done the exact same thing Adam did. And he represented humanity, Abraham represented every priest who was ever to come because he's the father of them and they were in him. And so since he submitted to Melchizedek, Melchizedek is the greater, Abraham's the lesser. And so he was proving, the writer was, that this Melchizedek was a greater priest than the priests of Aaron and out of Levi through Aaron under the law. They were lesser than Melchizedek. And the psalmist David in Psalm 110 verse 4 made that prophetic statement that this priest to come would be a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek saying he's going to be a greater priest than the priests who come from the tribe of Levi through Aaron. He's a greater priest than that of the order of Melchizedek. And so it's very interesting. And his writers are having a hard time. His listeners are having a hard time getting their head around it because they love the old way. And they're not convinced new is better. I don't know if new is better. Well, new is better because new is from the order of Melchizedek, not from Levi. And we're going to see further. He's going to further argue why he's qualified to be that high priest when he's not from the order of the tribe of Levi through the, through the Aaronic priesthood, through Aaron. 
Now, let me just comment real quick. People have asked me, and I'm not sure which service I made it clear in and which one I didn't. I'm not sure I made much clear last week at all. But um, I wanted to make clear, people have asked me, do I, think if, do I think Melchizedek was a real guy or was he a what we would call like a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate human representation of Christ before he was born of Mary that he appeared in times past? Because there are some of those in the Old Testament. Is Melchizedek a Christophany or theophany? Is it God in the flesh represented somehow in a person? Or was Melchizedek a real guy? And, and my conclusion is that he's a real guy. The Bible doesn't tell us. We know that he was a type of Christ. He was a forerunner to foreshadow what Christ would be like. And that, and it seems that he was a real king with a real city to rule over. He was a real guy in real time. And his appearance with Abraham is a little bit different than some of the other Christophanies in the Bible. It doesn't really parallel them. And there are reasons to believe, many Bible students believe, that he was a real guy. Salem was an older name for Jerusalem. He was a king there. He was a priest. We don't know how he understood who the one true God was. Sometime after the flood, truth was passed down through Noah to Melchizedek, just how God revealed himself to Abraham. He revealed himself to Melchizedek. And there's no record of him in Israel's history. There's no record of him in the book of Genesis or in the Bible. And so for, for Jews or for Israelites to not have a record of your family is like, well, then who are you? If you don't know where you came from, how do you know, you know where you're going or who you are? And so to them, it was like he had no beginning or no end. What do you mean? You don't have a beginning? How could you not know where you came from, who your grandfather, your great-grandfather? And, and they don't know when he died. And so what did he do? Live forever? And so in that sense, because there was no record in Israel's historical records of this Melchizedek, he looked as though he always lived before, always lived after, and it was like a foreshadowing of this priest of the order of Melchizedek who had no beginning or no end. That's our wonderful Lord Jesus, the eternal second member of the Godhead, okay? And so there's some orientation there, but we must jump in. And the writer now is convincing them that that if perfection could have been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, back to verse 11, chapter 7, for under it the people received the law, parenthetically he says, what further need would there have been for another of a different kind priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, this priest who Abraham bowed down to, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, okay, the tribe of Judah, and in connection with that tribe of Judah, Moses said nothing about priests. Okay, so verses 11 through 14, our writer is wanting to convince the readers of this irrefutable truth about Christ our high priest. Number one, Christ provides a necessary perfection. Now listen, often in Scripture, especially in the writings of Paul, Pauline writings, perfection has the meaning of maturity. It means to advance or come to completion in Christ. All right, to have this perfection, it means to mature. Here, however, I want you to understand 
that the idea is to put someone in a position in which they are qualified to have access to God. You see, you can't just go lollygagging into the presence of a holy God. The only way you're qualified to go into the presence of God is to be perfect. Because why? Because God can't look at sin. And so that's why under the old system, you had a priest and the priest would go through this ritual of the shedding of blood, which was representative of this undeniable, irrefutable, universal spiritual law that God has that the wages of sin is death. And anytime there's sin, there has to be death. And so you would go to a priest and he would slaughter an animal and it would represent the death for your sins. And then you could be at that point for a while acceptable to God. I can remember when I was a boy in South Chicago, there were lots of Catholic churches there, and my buddies would go to confession. That was always interesting to me. Well, what do you say? What do you do? Oh, man, they would tell me they lied is what they did, but they didn't confess their lies. And the only reason they went is because their mom and dad made them go. And, you know, you go in this little booth, and there's a curtain, I guess, and the priest sits on the other side, and what do you do? You confess your sins to the priest So that the priest can do what? So that somehow the priest can represent you to God so that God will forgive you of your sin and appease the wrath of a holy God against sin so that you can have access to God and he'll tell you what to do to get rid of that sin. Well, I'm telling you that doesn't work. That's inadequate. And that's what he's talking about here. Verse 11, let your eyes go there. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, there would have been no further need for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek. So what we see is letter A in our notes that the Levitical priesthood was inadequate. It was inadequate. They could not provide the perfection needed to appease the sin of people before a holy God. What they were doing was ritualistically prescribed by the law. That's why he said in parentheses there, for under it, the people received the law, the priesthood and the law worked together, okay? And the, and the law prescribed how the priesthood was to function and the priests were the guardians of the law. But there were two main problems with the old system. This isn't in the text, but let's just stop and think for a minute. If the old way is inadequate, why? Why is the old way no good? Well, first of all, priests, if you think about it, were breakers of the law themselves. And before they could ever offer an adequate or perfect sacrifice, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. And then they would turn around the next day and sin again. And so you had this cycle here, and you had sinful people representing sinful people before a holy God, and that's not going to cut it. Ultimately, too, secondly, if you stop and think about it, there is no animal that was truly able to substitute for human sin. What's this poor calf got to do with anything? Is there any way that God somehow is pleased with the blood of a bull spilling on the ground? Is that really going to cut it? Well, he's the one who instructed it. What's that all about? But that blood of a bull doesn't save anybody. That blood's no good. What was it? It was a foreshadowing of a sacrifice to come that could provide a blood that would cleanse us from all sin and create perfection. Well, this begs then the question, maybe it's in your mind already. Okay, then, how these Old Testament people ever get to heaven? How did they get saved if this blood is inadequate? 
What about people who lived before Jesus and offered these sacrifices in obedience to the law? How did they get saved? And I think we're going to have to have a whole message on that, and I'll try to do a good job and make it really clear, okay? You know that I always try to do a good job and make it really clear, right? It's just that often I don't, okay? All right. Yeah. So first of all, the the Levitical priesthood is inadequate. Do you see that? Okay, let's just stop a minute, take a breath, me at least, and let's remind ourselves what we're doing here. We are embracing the arguments from chapter 7 of six irrefutable truths about Christ our high priest, and he's trying to convince the Hebrew believers of this, and the first one is that Christ is superior because he provides a necessary perfection that never could be found under the Levitical law, or there never would have had to be another priesthood under Melchizedek, okay? And the reason is, is because those priests are sinners, but the new priest isn't, and those priests use blood of animals that God doesn't care about. You know, blood of an animal doesn't get you anywhere with God, really. He goes on to say that the Levitical priesthood is regulated by the law, verse 12. We've already noted that. And the law regulated the priesthood. And so therefore, let her see, the law had no provision, he goes on to explain. He's admitting to them, I recognize that there is no provision Okay, verses 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken, this new superior high priest, who is referenced in Psalm 110, verse 4, when he says, the one of whom these things are spoken is a reference to Melchizedek's, the priest that would come of the order of Melchizedek. This one I'm talking to you about. This Jesus Christ. He belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Moses and the law would be synonymous there. The law never said a word about Judah serving as priest. So what? He's telling them, this priest is necessary because he provides a perfection that you need. Your old Levitical priests were inadequate. It was regulated by the law. And since the law made no provision for someone from Judah to serve as a priest, the law then had to be changed. That's what he was saying in verse 12. So the law then would need to be changed. Stop and think. How did the law change? And who changed the law? Can you let your mind run forward to the Sermon on the Mount where one day Jesus is teaching? Imagine the... Imagine the shock and awe that this brings. Jesus is teaching, and he's referencing the law. And he says, remember what he said? You have heard it said of old. What's he talking about? He's talking about the things from the law. You have heard it said, thou shalt not do murder. Thou shalt, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then he puts in a sentence that just shock and awe. But I tell you, But I tell you, you don't have to commit that. All you have to do is think it in your heart. And shazam, you're guilty. Well, wait a minute. It doesn't say that in the law. Oh, I changed the law. That's how the law got changed. When Christ came, the law changed. And he's going to continue to argue these things. Christ fulfilled the law. Okay? He he said he didn't come to do away with the law. So it is interesting how this fits together. Stay with me. We're putting the flour in the recipe. We're not doing frosting. We're not licking our fingers right now. We're, we're busy at work here. Right, everybody? All right. Irrefutable truth 
about Christ, our high priest, number one, he provides a necessary perfection. Keep that in mind. Don't forget it. He goes on now in verses 15 through 17, and look what he says. Christ proved superiority by his resurrection. Not only that, Christ, this priest from a new order, the order of Melchizedek, proves his superiority by his resurrection. Let me show you where the resurrection is in this passage. This is verses 15, 16, and 17 now. All right, so he's admitted that he's from a different tribe and that the law had to change to accommodate someone who wasn't allowed to be a priest, but that Christ himself changed the law ultimately. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. That's the priest that David prophesied would come. A priest like Melchizedek would come and start a new thing. Who has become a priest? This new priest would come. He would become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent or genealogy, but by the power of an indestructible life. There is the resurrection, my friend, tucked in that word. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him. Okay, so here's where in no uncertain terms, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the prophecy from Psalm 110 verse 4 is fulfilled in Christ. Right here it is. For it is witnessed of him. They know he's talking about Christ. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God said that. Okay? All right. Verses 15 through 17, Christ proves his superiority through the resurrection. Letter A, he recognizes immediately in the text, did you see that? That Christ has no biological credentials. He right up front with them. Christ has no biological credentials. This becomes more evident, verse 15, when another priest arises and Change is hard, but new is better in the likeness of Melchizedek. All right. Verse 16, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning biological descent. He's not from the tribe of Levi through Aaron. He's from Judah. He doesn't genetically out of that father fulfill the demands of the law to be a priest. Okay, so how then are we to understand that he is placed in this position of importance and it's legitimate? Here's how. But he says, not on the basis, the middle of verse 16, of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of his indestructible life. That's how. And later in verse 17, It was witnessed of him, God said, you are a priest forever. So he had no biological credentials, but he had supernatural credentials. Christ had supernatural credentials. Listen, no human priest could say he would live forever. Priests would die. Priests would represent you, then they would die. Then a new priest comes. The historian, the the Jewish historian Josephus, recorded that from the time of Aaron until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that there were 84 high priests. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, forget those 84 priests, 84 high priests. You have one high priest. 
And you need him because he brings a a necessary perfection and he's superior because he is endless in his living. He's never going to die. He never will be replaced. He will always represent you. He proved in the resurrection that he had authority over death, hell, and the grave. He's the eternal son of God in time past, in time forward. He lives forever to intercede on behalf of us. This is a priest who never gets tired of his job. This is a priest who never dies and forgets that I went in the box with him and that he got me into heaven. This is the priest that will always remember me. He will always remember that he represented us and he will always remember our name and he will always know that he's our high priest and it never ends ever and ever. Praise God. Christ then, is argue, the writer argues, number three, that Christ personally provides special connection, verses 18 and 19. We're not far from concluding. Stay with it. For on the one hand, verse 18, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Parentheses, verse 19 in the ESV, for the law made nothing perfect. What's he talking about? Let's reread verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment that is, that priests could only serve through Levi, was set aside because ultimately those priests don't do you any good. They're weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And in a way, speaking about the whole law of Moses, ultimately it can't do anything for you. But on the other hand, notice this. This is great. It's a great way to end our sermon today. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see, the people were trying to draw near to God through a priest and through a law that couldn't really ultimately get them close to God. Christ personally, though, provides this special connection that we need with God. That's what I mean by special connection. All right? So let's ask ourselves the question of what he's saying here. Why is it, in verse 19, that the law made nothing perfect? What is it? Why was the law insufficient? Letter A in our outline, the law was insufficient because why? Because it separated man from God. The law didn't connect man to God. The law separated man from God. Let me show you how this works a little bit. I brought an illustration today. I have a really cool six-foot aluminum level. Some of you might be interested to know that that was given to me uh, when he was moving away by my dear friend Al Nettlingham. It was his father's. He was a mason. And we use it on projects around here. So this is the law. Okay? The level is the law. Got it? Just know that. Okay. We're walking through the woods, and what are we going to do? We're walking, and we want a walking stick. It's rough. It's steep. And so we pick up a, a nice... This is a, a nice, straight stick. Right? This is a nice, straight stick. Now, this one came custom-built for a shooting fork for the barrel of my 270 right there. That's pretty nice. But anyway, it, it is a nice, straight stick until what? Okay, so this is us. This is the law. This is us. We are pretty good. We're pretty useful. We think we're in good shape. It's nice and straight, right? We would call that a nice, straight stick for our walking stick, except for the fork. But when we come up against the law, what do we find out? We're not, we're not straight at all. There's all kinds of problems here. Okay, now, what's the problem with the law? The law is good in that it showed me my shortcomings, right? But can the law do anything to straighten out the stick? The only thing the law can do is show the stick how crooked it is. Okay? And that's what the law does. 
And so the law was inadequate or insufficient to give me a perfection that is necessary to get to God. And so I have this new high priest who now knows how to personally connect me through himself with the heavenly father. See, the new high priest doesn't just represent the law. He changed the law, all right? And he provides a righteousness for me that I need a perfection to get into the presence of a holy God. He takes my sinfulness upon himself and he covered it in in an adequate manner. Once for all, he died, paid the penalty for the sin of the world. My personal sin is taken care of. And God accepted that sacrifice as complete and done once for all. No need for more sacrifices. And where the law could not straighten me out, this high priest, not only does he appease the demands of a holy God, but he can give me that righteousness so that I am straightened out. You see the difference there? Let's go back to our text. For on the one hand, a former, verse 18, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. What does he mean by that? The law never made anything perfect. The law just showed you where you were imperfect. Okay? But on the other hand, so this verse is written like this. On the one hand, this, but on the other hand, that. It's in the grammar of it more than it shows even in the English. On the one hand, you have this, and it could not take care of your problem. It showed you your sin, but it couldn't solve your sin. But on the other hand, a better hope, new is better than old, is introduced through which, and you could really say through whom, we draw near to God You see, the law was insufficient. It separated man from God. Christ is sufficient. He is our access to God. Let me conclude with a story from a preacher of about uh, almost a century ago or so. His name is Donald Gray Barnhouse. It's a true story. And it's it's illustrating this story priest who brings access to God directly, where through Christ we can go directly to God. We don't have to go through another priest. So he's a superior high priest. So we have talked about three irrefutable truths about Christ our high priest. Number one, he provides this necessary perfection that we need to get to God. Number two, he proves superiority through his resurrection and divine appointment. God appointed you will be a priest after Melchizedek. And thirdly, he personally provides this special connection that we're longing for with God. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor, well-known, probably about 100 years ago, over in Great Britain, he was studying in France as a young man. And during his student days in France, he pastored, Donald Gray Barnhouse pastored a little evangelical reform church in the French Alps. Once a week, he went to a neighboring village to give some Bible classes. And each time he made the trip, he would pass a local priest uh, from the church there, going on a similar errand in the opposite direction. Well, as it turned out, they passed each other every week, and they became friends. And they often would stop and chat together for 10 minutes or so, 
before they went on their separate ways on their ministry errands. On one occasion when the priest and Donald Graham Barnhouse were chatting and inevitably they would talk some theology, the priest asked Donald Graham Barnhouse, why do you Protestants not pray to saints? Why don't you pray to saints? Donald Gray Barnhouse said, well, why should we? The priest then decided to launch into an illustration on the way that one might get an interview with the president of the French Republic at that time. So he says to Barnhouse, one could go to the Ministry of Agriculture, or they could go to the Department of the Interior, or they could go to any one of the cabinet members that might succeed in opening the door of the president's office so that you might see him. The priest, triumphant in his illustration, smiled with the simplicity and clarity of his argument that he thought for sure would convince Barnhouse that there was value in praying to saints to open the door to the high priest, to the president. Well, at that time, Barnhouse writes, Raymond Poincare was the president of the Republic of France. He lived in the palace of Elysee in Paris. I'm not sure of my pronunciations, even though my last name is Marceau. Um, but, uh, so, he, so just bear with me. I'll call it Elysee. He lived in the palace of the Elysee in Paris. That would be the equivalent of the White House in the United States. Barnhouse said to the, Barnhouse said to the priest, uh, priest liqueur, suppose that I were the son of President Poincaré, and I am living in the Elysee, the White House. I live with him. I, I get up in the morning and I eat breakfast with him. And at the table, then I kiss him goodbye as he goes off to his office. And then I go down. I go down to the Ministry of the Interior and I ask for the fourth secretary of the second assistant if it is possible for me to see the Minister of the Interior. If I succeed in reaching his office, then maybe my request for an interview with my papa would be granted. You see, this high priest gives us a connection that no other priest could give us. It is direct access to Papa, to our Father. Praise God. So there's three of our irrefutable arguments. We'll build on that, and I hope it's making sense to you. Uh, Change is hard. Can you imagine growing up in a completely different system under a completely different system of priests and sacrifice? And then the pastor comes to town and he says, the church planter comes to town and he says, the old is out, the new is in, and the new is better than the old. Here's why. What is it in your life that is the old way that needs to go? And have you embraced this new reality in Christ He's our high priest. He creates this access to our heavenly father directly. Praise God for that. You know, you don't go through a human priest. The Bible tells us there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. You go directly to Christ. He's substituted into your place on the cross that your sin could be borne by him in a satisfactory way for a penalty of death that God would accept. So he takes your sin, but then he imputes, he gives his righteousness to you so that you can have direct access to your heavenly father. And then he's a priest who through his, I love that phrase, don't you? The indestructible life of our priest. He forever represents us to the father. Praise God.
Will you stand and close in prayer with me? Have you left the old behind, my friend? Have all things become new in your life as you've embraced Christ? I challenge you at this hour to admit your sinfulness before a holy God and to embrace the completed work of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf and make him your savior from your sin, your guarantor of eternal life. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you for another week. We thank you for this amazing teaching. Help us to get our heads wrapped around it as we build this foundation of meat of the Christian life and a deeper understanding of our salvation and a deeper understanding of the wonderful role of our Lord Jesus as our necessary high priest. Help us to understand these things with a special grace and insight. If you're tugging at hearts today, continue to do that and help people to turn their eyes upon Jesus. We thank you now for those who will enter the waters of baptism and share their testimonies And we pray your hand of blessing on the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now listen to me. Um, There is going to be a baptism. We're going to sing a hymn. And I'm going to go in the telephone booth and change. And we have four adults who are going to profess Christ publicly in their baptism today. It won't take a long time. We would love for you to stay, but we understand everyone cannot stay. And so Wayne's going to come lead us in this hymn. I'm going to change, and then we will have this short ceremony of baptism. If you can stay, please do. There should be words to you are my all in all. Let's sing together. And then if you need to leave, you may slip out. Others, please stay for the baptism. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious tool. Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in
be seated. commanded, aren't we, in Scripture? There we go. Thank you, Bill. We are commanded in Scripture that we are to go and to make disciples. The making of disciples involves conversion and commitment to Christ, and that is identified through the act then of baptism. It was modeled by our Lord Jesus. It was practiced by the apostles. And the idea is that we, re- we resemble, we reflect this, this outward symbol we say, of an inward change. We've come to Christ. Our sin is forgiven. What happened to our sin? It was buried with Christ. He paid the penalty for it. And then he rose again to newness of life. And we live in the power of that resurrection life and resurrection power. So when we enter the waters of baptism, what are we doing? We are symbolizing a believer's faith in the Lord Jesus out of obedience to Christ to go down into the waters representing the death and the burial of our Lord Jesus, but then coming up representing the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, representing our identity and resurrection with Christ. The Apostle Paul, in a spiritual manner, talked about this in Romans chapter 6. He said, you were buried with Christ. Well, when was I buried with Christ? And you were raised with Christ to walk in newness. When was I? When I come to a place in my Life and I recognize my sin and offense before a holy God, and I run to the cross, the blood of Christ cleanses me from my sin, and by faith I accept the free gift of God's salvation. What the Bible makes clear is that, that when God declares me righteous, the word for that is justification, when God declares me righteous, that he does something. He takes Van Marceau at the point of his salvation and he identifies him with Christ on the cross. So it's as though I was crucified with Christ and he identifies me in my sinfulness as being buried with Christ. But then he also identifies me with the resurrection of Christ. And so we understand the Bible to teach that those who have their faith and trust in Jesus Christ out of obedience to our Lord, out of his model, out of, out of the instruction given by the apostles in the epistles, that we enter the waters of baptism as a public statement of our faith in Jesus Christ, not to save us, but to proclaim our salvation in Christ by identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it is an interesting and somewhat of an odd ceremony, but it is symbolic out of obedience to Christ and the teaching of Scripture. It's clear as can be in Scripture that there's no such thing in the New Testament as someone who came to Christ who remained unbaptized. They believed and they were baptized, and you see that over and over in the New Testament. We have four adults today. The first is Donna Gansel, and she told me beginning at the service, I'm a little bit nervous, Pastor Van, and I said, that's okay. And um, So Donna, thank you for being here, and uh, what a joy to um, have you share your testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus. Would you do that, please, at this time? 
Yes. Um, 43 years ago, by the mercy of God, um, I was washed and received as a child of God. I asked Jesus to forgive me and to come into my heart and to save me, and he did. And fast forward about 40 years, I backslid for about four years, and then the next 30-plus years I spent in a very toxic place. I was part of a cult, Mm -hmm. and I learned that God was harsh and mean and that he was just waiting for me to step out of line so he could punish me. Um, But then about seven or eight years ago, I started coming to FBC, and God started unraveling that mess in my mind and showing me his grace and his love. And about a year and a half ago, I did something that a very dear friend of mine who has since gone to be with the Lord, his name was Gordy. He told me that his life changed when he asked to be made a servant. He asked God to give him a servant's heart, and that's what I did. And the joy is just unbelievable. He has changed me. He's filling me up all the time, and showing me my sin, which can be really devastating sometimes, but bottom line is he is a gracious and loving and patient God. And if you don't know him, I hope that you'll take this time to ask him into your heart because he will change you in a way that you never believed possible. Amen. Thank you, Donna. So, Donna, thank you for sharing. So, as a child, you came to a place that you understood your sin was an offense to a holy God, and you accepted Christ as your Savior, uh, but through a variety of teaching and things that were sometimes not biblical, there was confusion, and you've never been baptized before. Is that right? I was sprinkled as a baby. Okay, but today, (laughs) in, in confession and profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, You want the world to know that you're a follower of Christ, your sin is forgiven, and you're heaven-bound. Amen? Amen. Amen. Donna, thank you for that. Turn just a little bit this way. Donna, based upon your testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Next, we have a husband and wife team that are going to come. And uh, why don't you come right to the pulpit here? This is Kali and Sheena. And I left my note in my Bible, Savannah, uh, uh, Saris. 
Savaris, Savaris. Kali and Sheena, so, say your last name again, brother. Kali and Sheena, Varus. Varus, no, no S on the front. I'm sorry, man. I was in a hurry to change and get back out here. It's so. okay. All right. Well, Kali and Sheena, we are so thankful to have you coming to Fellowship Bible Church. And you all have applied for membership and you realize you've never been baptized by immersion. And you wanted to identify uh, with the church in that way. You also wanted it to be a statement of your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. Will you share your testimony? Kali, go ahead and go first and break the ice here and then Sheena. Sure. So um, I can't remember the exact day that, uh, that I was saved, that I took um, Christ's name on me. But I can remember the feeling. I can remember um, the, uh, the importance of, of all my problems um, didn't go away, but the weight of them did. And, and I, can, I can clearly remember that um, when, when my prayers changed and when I was praying in the name of Christ, that, um, that, that plants had a different smell. <laughs> the, the sun seemed brighter. Um, again, my, the worries I had and the problems I faced, um, mostly of my own, um, were lightened. They were there, but the weight was lifted. Um, I truly believe that that Christ is my Lord and Savior, and it's um, thanks to Him that uh, that I have joy in my life. Amen. Thank you, Sheena. Um, sorry. It's okay. I'm gonna have to look at my ugly cry face. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's all right. I wish I was as elegant as that beautiful woman that just came out of the water. I love Donna so much. Um, I, uh, what Khalid didn't share with you is that we um, came out of the Mormon church. And I don't know when, I can't pinpoint when I realized that, that I was, I was not, that I wasn't actually saved. I, I, I came to that realization over the last year or so, and and I just um, what I can tell you is that I am a sinner, and through Christ I'm saved. Amen, amen. Sheena, that is a great testimony. I was a sinner, but through Christ I'm saved. Amen, amen. amen. Kali, what a joy to have you and Sheena and your family, your boys with us, part, becoming part of Fellowship Bible Church and coming to a place where you recognize that your sinfulness was only taken care of at the foot of the cross. And uh, you, you have confidence, complete confidence that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior today. I do. Amen. Kali, based upon your testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the Sheena, thank you. Um, when God has brought you out of a dark place, that's emotional. 
And he's brought all of us from the depths of the miry clay and the pit of sinfulness and Satan's hold. And today you proclaim before the church that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Based upon that testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk. We have one more, a gentleman named Tom Hensley. I've known Tom a long time, and Tom um, just continues to want to grow in Christ, and he's had some ups and downs in his life, and he said, PV, I want to enter the waters of baptism and proclaim before my church here that I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Tom, uh, stand there at the pulpit. Tom's got a bad leg. He's lost a leg, and so he's he's got a... I don't know which one is your good leg anymore, but... uh, (laughs) He's, uh, he has a prosthetic leg, so we'll have to take a minute and get it off when it's time to come in, but that's no big deal. Tom, Lord bless you. We've known each other a long time. Uh, I believe um, um, I was just uh, very early in my time at Independent Bible Church, so it would have been um, about the late 80s, uh, 89, 90, right in there, about 1990. I was preaching at the Martinsburg Rescue Mission and I gave an invitation for salvation, and this young 27-year-old guy, I think it was, came forward. He had an afro back then. And, uh, More hair. Yeah, Tom, we've been friends ever since. Uh, sometimes we've been enemies, but then we always reconcile, and we've had some ups and downs. But uh, you've been a faithful brother, and uh, it's been my joy to be your pastor and uh, share your testimony. Yeah, I just want to say... Uh, um, I know that he just shared about meeting him at the rescue mission over 30 years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, when he brought the word out, it's like uh, it, it touched me in a way that uh, God's word has never touched me before. Uh, and I went forward and, and talked to him. And we've been friends ever since. Right. Um, but uh, right after I lost my leg a couple of years ago, uh, this is kind of hard for me. Uh, him and Janet showed up on my doorstep in Dallas, Texas, <laughs> of all places. Uh, he was the last person I thought I would ever see in my life again uh, because I hurt this man a couple times in my life. <laughs> I stood on his front porch and told him to give me my money because I wanted to go get high. Uh, but today, through God, and through Pastor Van, uh, I have Christ in my life today. My life is considerably changed today because of Fellowship Bible Church and because of Christ being in my heart. So, Amen. Thank you, thank you Tom.
Okay, good job. This is closer than I like to be to you, Tom. <laughs> good job. <laughs> so when you we, we could stand here and tell a lot of stories, couldn't we? Yes, sir. Yes, we sir, could. we could. could. Quite a um, you know, let me do tell one story really quickly, and then we're done. I was out running one afternoon in Martinsburg, where we lived. I was still a youth pastor at IBC, and Tommy was renting a house on High Street up above, looking down on the neighborhood there where the underpass is at Burke Street Bridge. It's a rough neighborhood. The week before, there had been a killing, a shooting between drug dealers. Tommy was pretty down in the dumps. I went running one evening, and it was summertime and hot, and I, he was sitting on the front step of his porch, so I, I stopped. That was a good place to turn around and head back, so I had run into town that, that night, and stood there talking as we talked it was just the the neighborhood below was kind of just teeming with life and it, it wasn't all good and it's a rough neighborhood and I said to Tom I said Tommy and I had in mind the week before there'd been a killing on the corner down below there I said Tommy how are we going to reach all these people and he he was sitting on the porch he looked up at me and he said what do you mean and I said, how are we going to meet, reach all these people for Christ? And I was trying to think how I could start a camp or start some program, you know. And Tommy looks up at me, and he taught me a real important lesson that night. He just said, talk to him, I guess. <laughs> That's how you reach people for Christ, right? right. You talk to them about Jesus. Tommy, you knew you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. You profess that you've been to the cross. Mm -hmm. Your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes. Tommy, based upon your testimony of faith, can you scoot down this way? Based upon your testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. we stand together let's sing amazing grace together shall we amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i once was lost but now am found was blind but now I see Amen? I'm going to ask Monty Kidwiler Jr. to come up to the mic just come to the pulpit mic and close us with a benediction would you brother? Godspeed with your week we'll see you Wednesday night pray. Please lead us. Father in heaven, we thank you for these four adults that took that step forward in believer's baptism. We pray that you would bless them as they take that step forward and, and their new life. Father, we ask that uh, you would bless the remainder of our evening tonight <laughs> and uh, that you would dismiss us with your blessing at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. Pastor Everett, do the chairs get stacked? As far as I know, the chairs should get stacked if a couple of you young bucks can stay behind, please. Thank you. <laughs>